So it, as we kick off week number two of Meals with Jesus, and I was talking about like uh, the image of the kingdom of God, like this big feast, like a family get-together. Um, we were chatting a little bit about that at uh, Young Adult Small Group last week. And what came to mind uh, while we were chatting was when I was younger, um, I had a really unique situation that at the time I just thought was normal. Um, but my grandparents were next-door neighbors. Um, and they lived about 10 minutes from the house I grew up in uh, when I was real little. But they were next-door neighbors. And even when my grandma Griffin, on my, my dad's side, um, had to move because she was renting the house, my other grandparents, my uh, grandma and grandpa Tilsey, sold my grandma Griffin land, and my grandma Griffin built a house on the property behind them. So uh, from the time I was probably four, from the earliest memories, my grandparents were next-door neighbors. And so on days where there was holidays, family get-togethers, you know, big celebrations, um, we didn't have to choose which direction we were going. Uh, we did both. Um, and it was walking distance. So we'd go to my grandma Griffin's house. Uh, my, my, the Griffin side of my family was a much smaller, um, smaller family. Um, and so when you'd go to Grandma Griffin's house, the table would be set with the exact number of place settings for the people that were going to be there. Um, and it was a small, quiet, my grandma was this quiet, kind of independent, strong person. So when you went to Grandma Griffin's house, the house just kind of always had this, it was kind of like being in a library. It just, you, you just felt uncomfortable if it got too loud, right? Like you just knew um, Grandma Griffin's house was a place where you sat around the table and you had conversation. And as a kid, when I was there, I knew that that was the role. And, and I knew where I was supposed to sit. Like, they laid out the, the plates for every individual. And when you got there, they said, this is your place at the table. And so we'd go there. Uh, oftentimes, Grandma Griffin's house was, was the earlier meal. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa Tilsey's house usually was later meal because family had to come from farther away, and there was a lot more family. My mom ha- was part of five brothers and sisters, and... They had a big family, and I had a ton of cousins, and there wasn't place settings for specific people. There was a stack of plates in the kitchen, and there was food in the kitchen, there was food in the dining room, there was food in the room off of the dining room, and you just made your way around and found a place. And so after eating all the good food at Grandma Griffin's, we would make our way over to Grandma Tilsey's house, and we'd grab our plate and see what they had that we didn't have at the other place, and and fill up our plate, and then you'd find a place. Um, Sometimes there was a thing called the kids' table. Um, That just usually meant things were being thrown. Um, You could be any age and sit at the kids' table. But it was was loud. It was chaotic. It was, um, you didn't have an assigned seat. There was no, you know, agenda for conversation. Um, But you always knew, we always knew that when we walked in the door, even if we were the last ones there, even if there was 30 or 40 other people in the house, that there would be a plate, there'd be food, and a place for us to sit. And we'd finish up that meal, and then we'd wander over to Grandma Griffin's just in time for dessert. Um, And we'd kind of see what they had there, and then we'd go back to Grandma and Grandpa Tilsey's house and catch the dessert table over there. And so uh, it was a pretty, uh, like I said, as a kid, I just thought this was normal. This is what everybody did. And um, it was a pretty uh, amazing experience to have my grandparents and my family so close to have my cousins on both sides learn to play together in my grandparents' backyard. And, um, but anyways, those experience of family dinners, 
uh, connected me, uh, I thought about those as I was reading this Isaiah 25 that I read a few moments ago, verses 6 through 8, where it says, Here on this mountain, uh, the God of angel armies will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, the best wines, this great seven-course meal, lavish with gourmet desserts, right? Like the image that comes out of Isaiah is, is the best fang- banquet, this feast that is fit for a king. It's God's banquet, God's feast. When, when things are as they are, there's going to be this meal that you just cannot imagine. And here on this mountain, God will banish the doom that is hanging over all people. The shadow of doom will be removed. Um, God will wipe away the tears from every face. He will remove every sign of disgrace from his people. Like This idea of a feast is connected with God making everything right. This idea of a feast is, is the idea that everything is under God's authority as it should be. Right? He'll remove every sign of disgrace, there's no tears, no suffering. Um, this is what God says. So Isaiah declares that there will be this great feast that God will provide for all the people of the world. God will remove shadows over all the people and darkness that is in, present in all nations. God's kingdom is like this feast for all nations. So there's this connection between this feast imagery in the Bible and God's reigning and ruling over the world. And so we hear God declaring clearly that God will prepare this feast for everyone. All people. It says it several times. All people, all nations. Uh, When you read nations in the Bible, don't think countries, think peoples, people groups. When it says go into the nations, it means go to all peoples. They didn't have the kind of the mindset of countries the way that the modern world is organized now. Um, But he says it'll go, it's God's plan that all people and all nations be gathered together and enjoy this feast together. What a vision from Isaiah, right? Like think of your best Thanksgiving dinner and the whole world is going to gather together for that type of party, right? That type of feast. That's the image that's coming out of Isaiah. Everyone is invited, everyone is welcome, and we're going to have this feast. So that's Isaiah. That's the backdrop of our scripture for today, which comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is a story from the life of Jesus. It'd probably be familiar to some of you. Um, It'll be on the screen, I think. The slide's working. Cool. Um, I'm looking at the back screen going, I don't see it, but that's because it's... I'll figure it out. Um, but our scripture, Luke 5, 27 through 32, says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, Pray with me, if you will. Father, we are... Grateful this morning for your word. Again, not just words on a page, although we are grateful that somehow you have, through time, preserved and translated and worked through inspired people to present to us uh, the Bible in its, in, in, so we can access it and read it and share it and learn. But 
more importantly, we are grateful for the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Your son, the Logos, the word of God, um, living in the presence of his people. Um, And so may we have ears to hear this word and eyes to see this word today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So in this short little story, these six verses, I think there were six verses that we just read, there are two main uh, groups, right? Did you catch the two, kind of the two groups? There was Levi, he was a tax collector, um, who after being called by Jesus, threw a party, threw a banquet, had a feast, um, and other tax collectors attended. So he invited his tax collector buddies to this dinner with, with Jesus that he was throwing. Right, so that's one group. You got all these tax collectors at Levi's house. Um, the other group is the Pharisees, and we've met them before in other scriptures. But we've got the tax collectors and the Pharisees, and if you know anything about the Bible, these groups, you know this is a setup for conflict. Right? There's tensions here. Um, these two groups couldn't be more different. Tax collectors were the middlemen between. Uh, the Roman rulers and the people of Israel, right? You probably have heard this before. Um, Tax collectors were not well-liked by their community. They were um, kind of viewed in the most negative light because the tax collectors weren't, most of them weren't actually paid by the Romans. Um, The way that they earned their wage is that, so they signed up to work for the Romans and then they if you had a $100 tax bill, let's say they would come and charge you 120 or $150 and 100 would go to Rome and the 20 or 50 would go into their pocket. And that's how they made their living. And so uh, the more money they could extract from the people, the more they kind of cheated their own people, the better they were doing and the higher up they could move into the ranks of the Roman world. Um, so... You know, that was kind of the nature of things. By nature, many people, most people viewed them as cheaters, thieves. Um, the only ma- way they made money was by taking too much money from you. And because they volunteered for this line of work, because uh, they wanted the stability of being part of the Roman Empire, that system, uh, and, you know, to collect this money, everyone saw tax collectors not only as cheats, but as traitors as well. Right? The Jewish perspective was that the Romans uh, should not be there. They should not be ruling Israel. Um, and that God was going to defeat them, kick the Romans out, and reestablish uh, independent rule for Israel with God's chosen leader. Right? So remember the hope of Israel was that God would put Israel on top again. God would defeat those that were against Israel. That was the hope. That was the expectation. That was tied into the Messiah, um, the whole role of this Messiah. So during the time of the story, the Romans were in charge, but the Jews believed that God was going to kick them out and put somebody else in charge, right? Uh, as, so as the, the author, Tim Chester, who I, he wrote a book that I'm leaned on heavily as I was researching this, this sermon series, um, Tim Chester put it this way. He says, it wasn't just Jews versus Romans. It was God versus the Romans, right? So that's how they viewed it. It, God was going to fight the Romans. God was going to send his anointed one, his Messiah, the chosen one, uh, to kick out the Romans. So it wasn't just Jews versus Romans. It was God versus the Romans. And the tax collectors had chosen their side, the Romans, 
So obviously, they've abandoned not only their own people, but their people's God. They were traitors to the nation, and they were traitors to their God. They had become God's enemies. So then that was one group, these tax collectors, and then there's this other group, the Pharisees. They were the religious superstars of the day, right? The Pharisees were this group of religious people who looked at the history of Israel, the events, the activities, their suffering, all the stuff that goes on in the history of, of Israel, the Old Testament stories. They understood that theologically. The history of Israel was a theological history. And what I mean by that is that the bad things that have happened and continued to happen to them, they understood because they weren't faithful, those things happened. Because they weren't uh, obedient to God, those things happened. Because they didn't love God the right way, those things happened. Which, I mean, the Bible comes right out and says that in, in places. So they're not wrong. Um, but that's, they interpret everything in their history as a theological history. Um, we suffered because we sinned. We're far from God because we weren't faithful to God. Um, and conversely, the way things will get better, the future of Israel would be what they hoped it to be, this independent, thriving, powerful Israel. The way that that's going to get there is if Israel would be faithful and obedient. Right? Seems fair. So for the Pharisees... Their understanding of faithful and obedient, it meant pure and clean. The Pharisees were this group that took the ritualistic cleansing of the Old Testament. Like when you read these ritualistic cleansing routines, food preparation stuff, all these types of things in the Old Testament. If you read them in context, you'll understand that many of those laws were written about what you should do when you go to the temple and worship. Or what the temple priests are supposed to do in order to carry out their work in the temple as priests. So many of these, these ritualistic cleansing and, and purifying laws were designed for temple worship. Well, the Pharisees said, well, if that works in the temple, like if that's clean and faithful and pure and holy over there, obviously that's the standard for clean, pure, holy. Like you can't get better than that. So they believed what made the temple priests clean and holy would be the things that made Israel clean and holy. And again, only when Israel was this pure, clean people would God show up to redeem and restore Israel. So you kind of understand their, their logic behind this. This is a theological framework that they lived in. And so what this meant for the average person, um, in order for them to remain clean, in order for the, the everyday, you know, Joe Smith, to remain clean and pure according to the Pharisees, they'd have to do all these ritualistic practices and cleansings. Things that were, like I said, always built around temple worship are now being introduced into the home and family life. And you'd have to constantly be doing these rituals. If you didn't, you weren't clean, you weren't pure, you weren't holy. And again, the future of the nation is tied to your ability to be clean and pure and holy, right? They believed the Messiah wouldn't come. These Pharisees said, well, the Messiah's not going to come. Salvation wasn't possible until we as a whole people are pure and clean, eating pure foods with other pure and clean people. And this is what governed their lives. A quest for cleanliness, a quest for, a quest for purity. One area where this quest for purity showed up in dramatic fashion was regards to shared meals. This was a big one. The Pharisees 
understood that their tables in their homes, they understood that as the equivalent of the altar in the temple. I mean, this is a big parallel to draw. This connection is, is massive and it has huge implications. They understood <coughs> their temple in Jerusalem and therefore they strove to maintain in their households and among their eating companions the state of cleanliness, of purity that was required in the temple priests. So you see how they've raised the bar. They've raised the expectation from, well, if you're going to be a temple priest that works in the Holy of Holies and sacrifices before the Lord and speaks on behalf of God and all the temple work that happens, you had to do these things. And now the Pharisees are saying, you have to do these in your own home. These rules govern you. And so a central question in Judaism during Jesus' day became this, with whom can I eat? What can I do around my table that isn't going to defile my home? How do I be faithful? How am I faithful to this, this expectation of a pure and clean table? The question becomes, with whom can I eat? Present holiness and future hope expectations were bound up in the question, with whom can I eat? And so doing lunch was doing theology. The people you chose to share a table with, chose to share a meal with, not only was like how you spent your afternoon, but it was what you thought God was up to and what you thought God demanded and expected of you. It also defined where you fit in God's kingdom. Were you clean? Were you holy? Or were you not? So sharing a table with someone became a sign of acceptance, of friendship, of equality and shared status. The high and noble and pure wouldn't share a table with the lowly, impure, and unclean because that would bring their status down to the lowest level. Inviting someone to your table meant that you had an acceptance of their behaviors. To invite somebody to your table meant that you uh, agreed with their faith, that you shared a similar status with them. So symbolically, Levi, the tax collector, uh, rejected the Jews' table. When he went to work for the Romans as a tax collector, he said, I, I no longer desire a seat at the table of the Jews. And they, in turn, said, yeah, we don't really want you here anymore either. He left the table of the Jews and joined the table of the Romans. He made himself an enemy of God, as far as many of the Jews were concerned. Levi, the tax collector, was no longer welcome. He was no longer pure. He was no longer clean. There was no seat at the table of the Jews for Levi anymore. But let's look again at the text in Luke chapter 5. Um, did I have a slide for this one, Jonas? Did I, I can't remember if I did or not. Perfect. Well, it wasn't up there when I looked, so I don't know. Um, just two verses real quick. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. All right, so tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It wasn't just the tax collectors who were shunned and excluded in the name of national purity and cleanliness. Um, the phrase tax collectors and sinners kind of became kind of a, a catchphrase for like all the people that don't fit right, the, the people that, that aren't good enough. The people that aren't clean enough, pure enough, whatever, kind of that tax collectors and sinners, you see that phrase used a lot in the Gospels. 
And it basically meant the people that society looked down upon and said, you're not good enough. Um, and so th- it wasn't just Levi and the tax collectors that were shunned from the table, but it was sinners um, of all kinds. And the, the way, again, remember that the Pharisees raised the standard up very high. You had to be able to do these meals a certain way. You had to be able to prepare these ritualistic cleansings for you and your family. Um, and so in, in, in reality, it actually cost a great deal of money to maintain that level of purity. There's a reason why people had to give money to the temple to support it. Um, a poor person couldn't actually afford the right kind of food on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, or didn't have the resources to use the clean water or to construct the right kind of ritualistic cleansing facilities in their own homes. Like every house couldn't be a temple. And so the, the, the more poor a person was, the more difficult or impossible it was to be faithful. And so what the Pharisees inadvertently, or on purpose, I don't know exactly, but their system created a system in which... Uh, Poor people were excluded. They were in the sinner's category simply because they could not be pure enough or clean enough. They didn't have the resources. Um, So the faith of the Pharisees became a faith for those with wealth and means. And you can see why Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees, right? As this one who came from a poor village in Nazareth. And so this, this faith of the Pharisees, this, this faith that requires great wealth and great means in order to uh, be faithful to it, um, the Pharisees have created it. That system that the Pharisees put together basically ensured no poor person would ever be considered pure and clean. And the sad thing is society at large kind of looked at that and said, yeah, you're probably right. Um, they agreed with the Pharisees' view of things. And so this quest to get pure so God would show up actually set barriers between people. It reinforced division in the culture and actually brought shame uh, and judgment against those who didn't have the means to be faithful the way the Pharisees wanted them to be. Um, There wasn't room at the table for sinners, and that category included poor people. It included Gentiles. It included sick or those with poor reputations. Again, the people at your table had to be pure and clean, otherwise it would defile you you were no better than the lowest ranking person at your table. The table of God, according to the Pharisees, is reserved only for the holiest of the holy. If you're familiar with the Jewish temple, you're probably familiar with the phrase, the holy of holy. There's a central area. Um, think of the, the temple as uh, this place of concentric circles. The farther out you are, the farther away from God you are. But as you move in, you have to be more holy, more pure, until you get to the very center, the holy of holies, and only the purest uh, priest could go in there, and only on a certain day, and even that was at a risk, right, to be in the very presence of God. And so, you know, you have these concentric circles that women can only go so far, foreigners can only go so far, men can only go so far, and then you have to do this, and then you have to be ordained, and then you have to, like, there was physical barriers that you could only get so close to the presence of God. The holy of holiness person could go. And that's what the Pharisees and other Jews throw a feast, that God was going to take the shame away, that God was going to remove darkness, that God was going to bring a day where there was this great feast, this great banquet, 
like the book of Isaiah said, they absolutely believed that was going to be the case. A feast of fine foods, best wines, a feast of seven courses, a lavish with gourmet desserts. They believed there was going to be a party, like Isaiah said, but they changed the guest list. They said, of course God is going to have this feast, but it's crazy to think that God actually wants to invite the unclean, the unholy, and the impure to his table. So they believed the party was real, but they believed God had got the invitation all wrong. They properly understood that sin separated people from God, and they correctly understood that sin makes people enemies of God, but what they failed to miss, what they neglected to understand, what they missed when they read the scriptures or heard the scriptures was the very thing that Jesus spent his entire ministry proclaiming. God loves his enemies. God loves those who aren't pure just as much as he loves those who are. God loves the healthy and the sick. God loves the holy and the sinner. It's because God loved the world that he sent his only son, right? For neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the words of Paul in Romans 8.38. So while it's right to believe that sin, to know that sin separates us from God and makes us enemies of God, it's also important to know that it's God's love that conquered sin and the power that it holds. That through Jesus, the love of God defeated that, tore down that wall, and separate, and that barrier is gone. That was the mission and the work of Jesus. So while they understood sin separates, they missed out that love joins back together. The love of God overcomes that, defeats it. So the Pharisees thought that this party would be a small party with a select group of the most holy uh, of course, they're included, but other people, like people like them, would be the most holy and pure people. And so the question of the day was, with whom can I eat? And Jesus flips this whole thing on its head, and his message is that everyone is invited to the table. There is a seat for sinners, there is a seat for the poor, there is a seat for the sick, there is a seat for those that society has forgotten and has neglected or pushed away. There's a seat for uh, enslaved people and slave owners. There's a seat for the wealthy and for the widows and the orphans and the poor. There's a, a seat, and if you're, you're tracking with me, you know where I'm going. There's a seat for everyone, which means there's a seat for you. And not just the best version of you, not you on your best day, not when you've got it all figured out in that moment and like show God, oh look, I'm on my best behavior today or I've got it all figured out, but there's a place for you uh, or um, as you are. It's not the best version of you or you when you've cleaned up your act and have everything figured out but you as you are exactly in this moment. And this is a reminder that, that this table that you're invited to is always God's table, right? It's Jesus' table. It's his invitation. And we're there not by our own merit, but because he invited us there out of his love. He wants us to experience it. It's his table. And so in turn, this is a reminder for us that this is not my church or your church, but Jesus' church. 
in which he has invited us to be a member of, to participate in, to gather at the table uh, so that we can be blessed by it, but also that we can take the meal that we get here, the sustenance, the life that we find here, and share it out into the world so that they know that there's a feast that they can come and be a part of. Jesus showed up handing out invitations to God's party, and that invitation said, come as you are. Nothing that you are, nothing you have done merits this invitation. You have not earned your place at these tables, at this table. Which means that nothing you are or nothing you have done will revoke that invitation. That's grace. Grace is God's ongoing invitation to feast at his table. This is continually ongoing invitation. Come, come, sit at this table Enjoy the feast that God has prepared. It's ridiculously inclusive. Everyone who wants to come can come, Jesus says. Of course, there are rules about how we are to behave once we get to the table, right? We have have to have table manners because one of the things that we realize when we gather at these tables, when we sit here, is that we are not the only one invited. There are others who have gathered, who have said yes to this invitation, and so we have to behave as such. But the invitation to come isn't based on your status. It isn't based on your merit. It's completely based because of God's love for you. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, passed out invitations to a party as well. They went out and proclaimed there was a party, there was a banquet, and here's the invitation. This is what it said. You're invited to come, but you better clean up first. You better get your act together. You've got to earn this invitation. We will be at the door checking to see if you are good enough to come sit at God's table, which, by the way, we are, so just look like us. That was the invitation the Pharisees had. And you know what happened? People didn't come. They didn't show up because they didn't think they were good enough. And so, church, we... we, Talk about, I mean, I look at uh, another study came out yesterday. I was reading it last night. Um, faith in God is the lowest it's been since that's a, in, in the U.S., uh, since we've been tracking that type of thing. Um, it's down percent, high percentages from when they started this years ago. Um, faith in God continues to decline. Church attendance continues to decline. And we as the church, as church leadership, often sit around and talk about how do we reach our community? How do we change that trend? How do we let people know about the goodness of God? And yet, the prominent voice, if you turn into popular Christian culture, the prominent voice that people hear is, who's not welcome? What disqualifies you from being part? And as a church, we, we fight for the same quest for purity. We, we, we This is off notes here, and so I'm trying to <laughs> uh, figure out exactly where I'm going with this, but the popular voice in the church isn't an invitation for people to come. It's, a, it's an announcement of who's not welcome. Um, whether it be you have to be this political party to come, you have to be this uh, type of person, you have to have this background, you have to have this belief in order to come. If you have those things, we'll let you in, but if you don't, you're not welcome at the table. And people heard that invitation of the Pharisees and they said, yeah, we don't fit, we're not coming. And so as a church today, it makes no sense for us to lament the fact that people aren't coming to our church when we're not individually, but as a culture, inviting them and making them feel like they belong. And so today, choice, we, church, we have the choice. Do we hand out invitations to the Jesus party? Or are we handing out invitations to the Pharisee party? 
Do we share the good news with people that there is a seat at the table for them or do we tell people that if they change their ways, if they clean up their act, if they figure out what we believe and what we do and are willing to, to do all those things, then we can maybe find them a seat. I'll tell you my deepest desire as a pastor of this church. I mean, this is as core as it gets. And I'm not just... Um, saying this because it sounds churchy or cliche this is from my heart this is my deepest desire this is the thing that motivates everything that I do as a pastor whether it be a decision in a board meeting or a conversation with somebody or uh, the sermons everything I do is built off of this one deep desire it's the thing that gets me most excited about the church but at the same time frustrates me and causes me great grief right this is the one thing that my deepest desire for this church and that is to see our church grow into a people who are known for handing out invitations to the Jesus party. I define success for me as a pastor as, as nothing less than us becoming the people who are known for being ridiculously inclusive, for, for having a, a congregation that is filled with people that are not even sure why they're here. They just heard an invitation to come and receive good news, and they came and received good news. I define success for me as a pastor as, as seeing us become the people who are known for being ridiculously inclusive, for inviting people to the party, for sharing the announcement of grace, for telling them the good news about their seat at the table. There are people in our community that don't attend church anywhere because they don't think they measure up or that we would let them come. Every time I do a funeral, every time I do a wedding, there's always the running joke. Somebody walks in the door and says, well, I'm surprised I haven't been hit by lightning yet. Somehow, the church has created a culture that, that says, if you're not good enough, you're not welcome. There are people in our community that don't attend church because they don't believe they measure up. They know that people are aware of their struggles, their background, their history, their current situation, and they think that disqualifies them from having a seat at the Jesus table. So my deepest desire is to be known as a church that shares the good news to those people that they have a seat at God's table. And I desire that because I've learned something along the way that Jesus knew all along. And I hope you catch this, because this is the crux of everything. I said this is my deepest desire, this is my greatest understanding of what church is. People don't change and then start a relationship with God. That's exactly backwards, right? People enter into a relationship with God and that changes them, right? As, as holiness people, that's what we believe, right? You, you, you put your trust in God and then the Spirit shows up and meets you in those moments and begins this transforming, sanctifying work. It doesn't start with sanctification and end with an invitation. It starts with an invitation, it starts with a relationship with God. People don't change and then start a relationship with God. They enter into a relationship, and that changes everything. Let me put the next slide up. And I can anticipate that this makes some people uncomfortable because I've had this conversation. When you start talking about being ridiculously inclusive, about welcoming people in and not being gatekeepers, there's, there's immediate concern and pushback that there's, there's no standards, there's no morality there's no goals but hear this today a seat at the table doesn't mean we like the sin in people's lives a seat at the table doesn't mean sin is being ignored a seat at the table means that those people are now in the one place in the world where they can be truly transformed 
If we believe that God's presence is transformative, if we believe that Jesus is the only answer for people, then how can we expect them to find that answer outside of the church? Right? So a seat at the table means they are in the one place in the world that we believe that they can meet Jesus. The one place in the world where we believe that they can have transformation. It's not ignoring sin. It's not approval of sin. It's an acknowledgement that the sin will be dealt with when they meet Jesus. Jesus said it this way in our scripture that we read earlier, Luke 5, 31 and 32. Verse 31, he said, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In verse 32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You don't go to the gym after you get in shape. You don't lose weight so then you can start a diet. You don't get well so then you can go to the doctor. You don't make yourself holy so you can be part of a church. And you don't fix yourself so that you can earn a place at God's table. God's having a party. (laughs) He's throwing a banquet. He's throwing a feast. And you're invited. And that church is grace. An invitation to the Jesus party. An invitation to feast at the table of the king. The rest of this sermon series is going to build on that understanding of grace. These meals with Jesus, it's not because you've earned that invitation. It's because of God's love, overcoming sin, overcoming death, is ridiculously inclusive. God's ongoing invitation to his table is grace. And so the rest of the sermon series will build on that grace, but for now... I'm going to invite the worship team to come and lead us again. And as they come and lead us in one more song, in a time of reflection and response, I, the invitation is just to simply receive God's grace as a gift. Be grateful. Let no pride, let no sense of ego uh, tell you that you've earned your place at this table. Whether it's your first day as a Christian or your hundredth year as a Christian, you cannot merit an invitation to God's table. It's always a gift. It's always a grace movement. So let's remember it's a gift. And be grateful. And then let's begin to celebrate when others find their place at the table as well. Maybe we can invite some people to find their seat at the table next to us. Receive God's grace, be grateful, and then help others find their place at the table as well.